So the question we're answering today is how to live when your days are numbered. How to live when your days are numbered. Jesus, uh, at this part of the scripture reading, is eight days before the cross. And he knows it. When we get to eight days out, I'm not sure we're going to know it. But should that matter? Well, let's just think about this as we look at the life of Jesus and watch and observe and learn from how he lived eight days out and maybe say, well, maybe there's something here I can take away from this. Maybe there's some things I need to understand that will help me process. Maybe there's some things I need to believe that will change how I live my days. Because the reality is all our days are numbered. We may not be eight days out. We may be less than eight days out. We may be more. So with that, let's pray. Lord, as we, as we think about the brevity of life and the sanctity of life and the preciousness of the gift of existing in the first place, we thank you and praise you and, and worship you today for being our creator. Lord, may we not take that for granted. May we not keep taking that for granted. Lord, may we recognize that this gift called life is so precious that it's worth thinking through how we spend this gift, how we flesh it out. And Lord, there's just no better example than the life of Jesus himself who had the same gift and gave it up for us. And so, so God, as we, as we think about your word, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do in our hearts and our minds to move us towards you. Whatever that means for each of us, we know you know exactly what we need. May we have ears to hear and eyes to see what it is you want us to hear and see by grace through faith today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so today I want to uh, take you on a quick tour, real short here, but uh, we're going to use this handy-dandy Google Earth. All right, there we are in Charleston. Everybody wave. All right, so we're, but we're not going to Charleston. We're going to Israel. All right, so we're going to fly to Israel and I want to show you something called the land bridge. Not something you typically hear in churches, but it's something that I learned about in seminary that will be instructive for us today as we talk about a concept called compassionate hospitality. Okay, I think it's part of answering that question, how are we to live? How did the Heavenly Father teach Jesus to live? How did he teach us to live? And how are we living in contrast to that? So uh, you can see Israel right in the middle of that. That's the little red balloon. But if I zoom out, just to kind of give us some more perspective, let me take you on a quick ge ge geography uh, lesson. The, the, blue, the dark blue in the middle, that's the Mediterranean Sea, as it's labeled, if you can read it. South of that, that would be below, is Africa. North of that, Europe. Okay, you with me? All right. And if we go and spin to the right... Then we see Asia, okay, where we're not supposed to get into land wars. Okay, now we come back, put Israel in the middle, and we find the Middle East, which is why it's called the Middle East. It's right there in the middle, isn't it? And the big um, visual that is the giant peninsula that Saudi Arabia is on, but we can see, so you can see a lot of the Middle East. You can see Egypt, Egypt's right, right here, 
and that's a key city. And then Damascus is right here, which is the capital of Syria. And Israel's right there in the middle. Now, I'm going to take, I'm going to pretend I take a screenshot and take you to a map where I did screenshot it. And I want to show you something right here. Now, let's think trade routes for a second. Okay. If you live in the Northern Hemisphere, Europe, Asia, we'll call it Eurasia. Okay. And you want to trade with people in the Southern Hemisphere, let's, Pretty much that's going to be either the south part of Asia, but Africa. If you want to get to Africa, there's, only, there's really only two ways to get there. Well, there's three ways to get there. Two of them are not easy. First is you can sail across the Mediterranean Sea. So you can get on a boat and go across the sea, but you got to have a big ship, okay? You can't take a little boat. Or you come across the desert. No one wants to travel in a desert. So that leaves one other option, which is the most appealing option, and that is to travel through land, across land, but not in a desert, where there are cities, where there are gardens, where there are people, where there are places to buy and sell along the way, and that is right in this area right here. If we zoom into that, you can see Israel right there, okay? That's called by, I don't know... Bible theologians, Bible students, Bible teachers, historians. It's called the land bridge. And the reason is because it bridges the northern hemisphere trade routes to the southern. Now, why does that matter? Why do we care? We're not talking about economics here. But remember, all of this matters because all this is part of the big picture. And that is this, that God blessed Abraham in Genesis 12. This is, what, uh, 3,800 years ago? He blessed Abraham to what end? To be a blessing to the nations, okay? Now, we as um, Christians in uh, the year 2023, when, when, when we preach about missions, when we preach about the Great Commission, when we, tr- when we preach about making disciples, we almost always emphasize go, which oftentimes means go to them, which is right and proper, and it's the way we should speak it. But it also means as you go, as you go through life where you live, work, and play right now. And most of us, while many of us, and Ken talked about how many of us have already gone to other nations, to other countries, to other places, even other cities, we, we've gone with the intention of loving people, serving people, to the end of being able to say, I want to make disciples. I want to help them understand what I believe and why that matters. And it doesn't just matter in the here and now, and it does matter in the here and now, but it matters in the hereafter, Okay. And so we do that. We go, or as we go. But you don't often hear us say this, compassionate hospitality. Okay. Now, the reason I'm bringing it up is because it's in the text today, and I haven't even started there. But what I want you to see here is that it goes all the way back to the very first covenant God made, not the very first covenant God made, the first covenant God made in, with the nation of Israel, specifically, specifically Father Abraham, the founder, the first of the nation of Israel, When he said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to multiply you, and you're going to bless the nations through your family. And he meant his literal family, but he also meant through his spiritual family. Those of us who were adopted, just like Mikey was talking about. In Christ, we've been adopted into that family. So I wanted you to see this land bridge here. I wanted you to see that, to remember that God put Israel in the path of every trader that was coming north or south for centuries strategically, of all the places God could have put the promised land, that's where he put it. And God doesn't do things by accident or just because. He has a purpose behind everything he does. And I think it's because he wants them to practice compassionate hospitality to every trader that comes through. 
And when they experience the love and generosity and precious love of God's people, imperfectly practiced, they're going to ask the question at some point, why are you like this? Because everywhere else I go, and traders, they know the cities, and they know which ones are the nice ones. They, you're different. Now, Israel was different for some bad reasons too, and, and so are Christians sometimes. And so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not here pretending that we, don't ha- that we have this down, but this is God's plan, is that we would be, receive the blessings of God, not so that we can just be, you know, comfortable, that we might turn around and be a generous blessing to those around us. And that's with our time and our talents and our, our treasures and everything else. Okay? And that's, that was the plan for Abraham. That's the plan for the Israel in the promised land. It's still the plan for them today. But because we are now being adopted in as Gentiles, which is a non-Jew, that's the rest of the world, we are called to the same, the same bottom line when it comes to the covenant. Okay, so that's, that's that. Now, and we're going to go into this passage now, starting in the beginning of chapter 21 of Matthew. That's supposed to go away, by the way. That can go away, I mean. I thought it would when I turned this off. Thank you. So, so we're going to go into Matthew 21, and from Matthew 21 to the end of the book, we're looking at the last eight days of Jesus, okay? And we're going to watch how a man who knew his days were numbered and knew how many n- there were n- numbers there were left, how he lived, Okay, we'll, we'll see that f- for the rest of Matthew. But today we're going to see several things. I want you to see that this, these are going to be the, my four last things I want you to remember. And I'm going to say them now in case I f- forget to say what you need to remember at the end. Okay, we need to remember who we are in Christ. I'm not going to unpack that now. We need to remember what hev- our Heavenly Father taught us, how he taught us to live, to live to please the hands that are scarred, the nail-scarred hands. We are to remember how he taught us to live. This is where compassionate hospitality comes in. And we need to remember to trust him. And when I say trust him, I mean believe, pray, believing that we will receive whatever we ask in prayer, which is a pretty bold statement. Okay? So with that, let's jump in, start reading scripture, and see what he has to say to us. If you are using one of the Bibles that are under the chairs, we're um, on page 801. Okay? And we're going to start in Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. Here we go. As they approached Jerusalem, who's they? They is Jesus and his disciples, the 12. Still, we still have Judas Iscariot in the crowd, right? Yeah, we haven't had the Last Supper yet. As they approached Jerusalem, the capital at that time of Israel, and came to Bethphage, a town, a village right outside, on the Mount of Olives, Okay, that's on the same mountain Jerusalem is on, so it's really close. Jesus sent two of his 12 disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, Bethphage, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt, with her colt buyer. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, that would be Zechariah. Zach writes, say to daughter Zion, see your king, this is important, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, 
for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And I'll get back to that in a minute. Okay, let me unpack some of this, explain some of this, okay? So he goes into Jerusalem. This is the first time in the book of Matthew that we see Jesus going to Jerusalem, but it's not his first time there. In fact, if you go to the book of John, you see his first time, he also does what he's going to do later, and that is clear the temple from all the nonsense that's happening in the court of Gentiles. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Here he's coming in. Matthew's bringing this to to say, we're ending in Jerusalem. Here we go. This is where Jesus came to die. And so he... He, he sets it up, and he sets it up by saying, okay, there's a lot of scripture, there's a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament scriptures, that's the Jewish scriptures, that's the first two-thirds of the Bible, okay, that prophesy the coming Messiah. And this is just another of many of those prophecies that are being fulfilled by Jesus, okay? And you can say, well, all he has to do is do what the prophecy said, and it's, quote, a fulfilling a prophecy. Well, that's true. I'm not sure why he would do it unless he's trying to put on a, 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 a fake messiahship. But there are so many prophecies that he couldn't have planned. He couldn't have orchestrated things that like happened on the cross that this is just going to confirm those. So this is five, this was written 500 years before Jesus. So 2,500 years ago, Zach writes that, that uh, prophecy that we just read. Okay, uh, Jesus sends two disciples, they go, and, and what they do, it's interesting, they don't go and ask, they don't go knock on the door, can I borrow your, your donkey colt? He, he, say, he says, just go untie them and bring them to me. Okay, this would be kind of like Jesus saying today, um, go, um, go find the vehicle in the first yard you find that's got car keys in it and drive it here. Okay, that's basically what's happening here. So apparently somebody sticks their head out and goes, hey, uh, what are you doing with my donkey colt? Okay, because it's the mother donkey and her colt. And they're like, uh, the Lord needs them? I'm, <laughs> I'm imagining uh, they're saying, well, Jesus, what he told us to say, right? And they're like, okay. You know, it's like they knew they were coming. Now, Jesus could have sent somebody ahead to arrange it, but he didn't tell them exactly. Well, he kind of told them where to go. So that could have happened. Or God could have just used a dream. You know, I, I mean, we don't know. We're not told. The point is that these things are arranged and they're happening because Jesus knows what's going down. He is not being caught off guard by the cross. And this isn't the only arrangement he has made that happens, okay? This is to remind us that Jesus is king. He is an authoritative king. He is a prophetic king. That means that he not only speaks prophecy, but he also fulfills prophecy. And then, and when we see the words of Zechariah there, see your king comes gentle and riding on a donkey, we see that he is a gentle, humble king. Well, that doesn't sound right. Most kings are not gentle or or humble, right? Most kings are full of themselves because they have all this power. And, And Jesus has lots of power, though on the surface it doesn't look like he does. But we know differently. Now, why did he come in on a donkey? That's that's a fair question to ask. Um, and I think the answer is kind of like, well, he's coming in peace. He's not coming like he's going to come next time. The Bible teaches that Jesus, the Messiah, will come as a suffering servant, and then he'll later come as a conquering king. This is the suffering servant version, okay? When you read the book of Isaiah... It talks about both of these pictures of the Messiah. And the religious leaders didn't know how to reconcile a suffering servant and a powerful king. How can a powerful king be a suffering servant? That doesn't make sense. Well, we don't want this one. So we'll, be, we'll go with the, suffer, the, the conquering king is our, our king and our Lord. And so they were looking for that as a, in a Messiah. So anybody that didn't look like that, they would just say, you're not for real. 
And Jesus didn't look like what they were looking for. This was part of the problem. But Jesus knew that, and he was okay because as a different kind of king, he came to lead a different kind of kingdom. And that's important for us to recognize. If we look like everybody else in the world, just a good version, a scrubbed-up version of an American, then we're not living kingdom living, probably. Not, um, not gospel kingdom living. Maybe American kingdom living. Maybe American dream living. Maybe even American gospel living, but not the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, so um, he continues here, um, and so they, they get the donkey. So there, he comes. So kings in that day, ancient kings, would usually come in, if they rode into a city, they came in on either a horse, a war horse, a powerful charger-type large stallion, or they came in on a donkey. And the reason was because they were trying to send a message to the people who, you know, they didn't have a lot of foreknowledge, although there would have been heralds saying, the king is coming, the king is coming, but how is he coming? Is he coming to, to attack us? Is he coming to conquer us? Is he coming to negotiate a treaty of peace? How is he coming? And depending on the beast he rode, that would immediately communicate his intentions, assuming he was being honest. Jesus comes in on a donkey this time. In Revelation, it says the next time he comes on a white charger. Not a Dodge charger, a white giant horse charger. More horsepower, too. All right? So, um, so a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. So now he's entering into the city, and he's doing what um, the people that are looking for the Messiah, and believe me, Israel is looking for their Messiah. They do not like being oppressed by Rome. They do not like being a vassal state. They want to be free. They want to be delivered. And so they, they, they see Jesus, and they're hoping this is the one. Although he doesn't look the part, they're kind of like, well, he's the best we got to work with. Let's go with this. And so they're, they're doing what you would expect, um, what you would expect if you believed he was truly the king of kings. And they are trying to keep him from having to even ride on a donkey on the dirt. So they're throwing down palm branches. They're throwing down their own cloaks. And I'm imagining they're going, well, you know, I mean, they don't have a lot of cloaks and clothing. And yet they're going to be able to say, see that hoof print? Yes, that was the donkey that he was riding on. I've got, he, I was there. You know, this kind of mentality. Now, keep in mind, this is the feast, uh, one of the five, one of the three major feasts. I don't remember which one. The Passover is a part of this. Unleavened bread, maybe? Feast of unleavened bread? Uh, feast of? Anyway, they are, they are so they're, this, the population city is five or six times bigger than normal. So millions of people are here in a small area. If you think the Flower Town Festival is crowded, okay, just multiply that crowd times a few, and you're going to get closer to what Israel, uh, Jerusalem would have been experiencing, but a much smaller walled city. So I imagine it didn't smell very great either. All right, so they're there, and they're, they're praising God for who they hope he has sent, and that is the Messiah. So they say words like Hosanna, which we're like, I don't know that word. It means save now. Deliver us now. We need salvation. We need to be delivered from Rome. Roman, they're thinking Roman oppression. Jesus is not here for that. He's something. He's here for something bigger. All right, son of David is another way, again, we talked about this in depth last week, to call him the Messiah. In the line of the king of David, he is the king, but yet David is going to bow to that king. Why would king David, the greatest king of all kings, bow to a great, great, great grandson who's king, unless he was greater? Well, if he's greater, how could he be greater? Well, the only way he could be greater than David would be divine. And of course, Jesus is God in the flesh. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus certainly comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Blessed. 
And then Hosanna in the highest heaven. Again, reminding us he's divine. He's coming as God in the flesh. When Jesus entered the city, the whole city was stirred. I would rather see them get this a little closer. The translation, the word literally means quaked. I love that word because it, it's like, it's not just stirred up. We're, it's like people are, there's a buzz going through the city so strong that things feel like they're vibrating, like an earthquake tremor. And actually, we have this earthquake, if you count that one. You have the earthquake on Good Friday. You have the earthquake when the tomb is opened. I kind of like that consistency, that pattern, that flow. Maybe they, that's why they wrote it that way. And what is making the city quake right now, the beginning of the passion? Okay, passion means suffering. Jesus knows where he's coming and going to. They're asking the question, who is it? Who is this guy? Remember, most of the people that are there for the festival have not run into Jesus yet. Not many of them have, but some of them have come from a long way. And Jesus, you know, he, was, he didn't go further than 200 miles away from Jerusalem, but he didn't go everywhere. People have heard about him. They've heard what he'd done. But, you know, just like you and I, if we'd heard somebody was healing people and not charging them, not even taking an offering for healing, right, they would be skeptical. I want to see it. Casting out demons, yeah, okay, I'll wait and see. Feeding thousands of people with a happy meal, I, I want to see that before I say I'm with you on that. And so there's all these things. Jesus is powerful teaching and preaching. Jesus' reputation is everybody's heard the reputation, but not everybody's experienced it. They haven't seen it. And I imagine that some people are looking going, that doesn't look like much, which is exactly what Isaiah said about him. He's not much to look at. Jesus wasn't a looker. I'm just quoting Isaiah, well, paraphrasing, okay? But he was, you couldn't take your eyes off of him. And so they're asking this question, and this is the question you and I need to be asking. Who is Jesus? Who is he really? Because if I realize who he is and I believe that, that changes everything. The implications in my life and how I live out my last days, incredibly important. Okay, so we can't get bogged down. We got to keep moving. The crowds answered this question, eh, sort of. They say, this is what they think. When This is the safe, politically correct answer for Jesus, by the way. You won't get people disagreeing with you that Jesus uh, was uh, a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, northern northern Judea, okay? Okay, so he's way more than a prophet. The Bible teaches that he is a prophet, priest, and king, and as the anointed one, and you anoint those in all three cases, he is prophet, priest, and king, okay? And I don't have time to walk you back through the scriptures that teach that. And while he grew up in Nazareth, he wasn't born there, was he? But a lot of people didn't know that because they were having an issue with Jesus being the Messiah because they're like, come on, everybody knows from Micah the book of Micah, the prophet Micah, everybody knows that the, the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. This guy's from Nazareth. You see it? Even the religious leaders missed it. Okay? Now, we move into Jesus gets into the city, he gets through all of that, and he just keeps making his way. It's kind of like when a, when a president enters the city and the news is covering, the cameras are going, the helicopters are above, and they're tracking the caravan, and they're like, okay, he's in the city. Now where's he going to go? Where's his first stop? 
his first stop's at the temple. Well, think about it. If you see, I, 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 if you have a map, an aerial view of, of, of Jerusalem, you see a walled city, and then you see this massive 35-acre rectangle on top of the highest part of the city, the Temple Mount. Okay? Today, there's a big mosque there. But in that day, it was the Jewish temple that where Solomon's temple was built, then it became Zerubbabel's temple, and then it became Herod's temple, one of the eight great wonders of the ancient world. And in that 35 acres, which was walled in by a 30-foot high wall, colonnade with columns, open air, most of it, inside of that you had the temple proper, the smaller enclosed areas that were 60 to 100 feet tall in areas where we talked about the veil being torn from the top, and that's why it was so tall because that it went to the ceiling of that part of the temple. And all of this was a nesting of courts. Holy of holies, holy place, and then you have the court of the priests, and you have the court of the men, the court of the women, and then you have the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles was the largest area that surrounded the temple, and and it was named by whoever, that's as far as you could go. So this is as far as the Gentiles can go, this is as far as the women can go, this is as far as the men can go unless they're priests, and so on and so forth. And so Jesus is going to come in, and he's going to go, he's going to look like he loses his temper. And it says, Jesus entered the temple courts, the the court of the Gentiles, and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So he goes in, he goes into this temple and in an area that is designed for a purpose is, it is not being used for that purpose. And what is that purpose? Think back to the land bridge. Okay. And traders are coming through and they're doing trades in Israel and they're finding things they don't find anywhere else. And they're interacting with, with uh, good Jews who love and know the Lord. And they're like, man, you people are different. I don't understand. What are you like? You see that? Up there on the hill, our God, our God is the reason we're different. Well, what do you mean? Well, let's go up there and talk to some people, and let me help you understand who the Lord is. He is our creator. He's the one that put us here. He's the one that carved out this land for a chosen people to take this message to the nations. That's why everything funnels, all the trade funnels through this land bridge so that people can come within walking distance of the presence of the God who created the universe with a word. You see it? Are the Israelis, are are the Jews going anywhere? No. They're to practice compassionate hospitality right where they live, work, and play. You see it? And so Jesus comes into the court of the Gentiles, and what's happening in the court? It's like, it's like Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus went rogue into Israel, and there's just chaos everywhere. What's supposed to be happening during this festival is that people are coming from all over the nation. All, all the men of Jerusalem were required to be there, even if their families didn't come. And they were to come, and they were to do things like pray and offer sacrifices to God. Okay, because that, that was the old sacrificial system, and they're coming to do that as a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that would make all of those no longer needed. 
Jesus on the cross. And so um, they, they are doing two things that are really offensive. One is, instead of people bringing the animals that they were going to sacrifice, they were saying, oh, you don't have to bring the animals. We'll sell you some so you don't have to deal with them on the way here. Okay? Which seems practical, but not what the Scriptures taught. So they come, well, you got to buy them, and the temple... Uh, I don't know, Sanhedrin, priests, who, I don't know who made the decision. They decided, oh, you have to use temple coins, temple currency to buy temple products, animals. Okay? So that means that if you come with your coins from wherever you're from, you've got to exchange. And there's an exchange rate, a really nice exchange rate for one side of that deal. Oh, and we're going to jack the prices up on the doves and the lambs and all the other things that you could sacrifice. And so there's this big money-making thing going on in the temple courts. And the sacrifices are happening in the court of the Gentiles. So there's no room for the Gentiles to get in there and come in and even learn, what does it mean? Who is this God that created the heavens and the earth? Who is this God? I just see this circus going on, this religious circus. So Jesus comes in and starts throwing over tables and takes a whip and starts clearing out animals and people and making it very clear that he is not happy with what's going on there. Now, he, I, he, I don't think he cleared the whole 35 acres. That would probably take a few more pages than we have. But he makes the point to the point that the religious leaders are going, by what authority did he do this? And there's this hoopla. But look what happens after he clears the space. This is where compassionate hospitality takes front and center stage. Watch this. And I'm going to come back to verse 13. It is written that my house is to be called a house of prayer, but you making it a den of robbers. He says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. You see that? But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. He's healing those who couldn't get in. The least, the last, and the lost. And that would include Gentiles. And that's who he wanted to welcome into the the court of the Gentiles, into the temple of God. And that's who Israel was supposed to be, welcoming with open arms, not calling them dogs, which is what they were doing. My house is to be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. What's a den of robbers? It's their hideout. It's where they feel safest. The robbers are in the temple and they feel safe there. That should bother us then and now. My house will be called a house of prayer. And he's going to come back to that in verse uh, 22. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And one of the things that we're supposed to remember is that we can trust God. And I don't just mean this, oh, just trust God. And, and you know, I don't mean this general, wide, mamby-pamby, I don't know if God answered the prayer or not because my prayer was so watered down in general that how would you know? I'm talking about specific prayers, bold prayers, prayers that you can say God answered it or he hasn't yet. That's why we should be praying. And he's going to talk about that when he talks about the fig tree. But, but it, we have to keep going. So, but, but I want to say this one other thing. I don't want to, I, this one, I got to say this. Okay, so this house of prayer, the temple of God, right? So um, the Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies in the temple at this time, representing the presence of God. And this is so the temple's called God's house. Now, Jesus is going to destroy the temple. Now, not literally, but effectively. 
okay, because he's going to walk out and it's still going to be standing. But within 40 years, the Romans will come in and wipe it off the map. It's A.D. 70. It will be wiped off the map, okay? And when they go behind the curtain, it is said that the Roman uh, general... I can't remember his name, who led the troops to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. When he went behind the Holy of Holies, there was no ark. Which is another way of saying God's presence was gone long ago. Where is God's temple today? I'm not asking where the ark is. Where's God's temple today? 1 Corinthians, sorry I didn't give you all this in the back. 1 Corinthians 3 is a letter written to the church in Corinth about 20 years later after all this is happening. Verses 16 and 17, Paul writes, oh shoot, I'm in the wrong place. Three, not 12. Here we go. Chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, verses 16 and 17. Don't you know, he's talking to Christians, don't you know that you, you yourselves are God's temple? It's a spiritual temple. God removed the bricks and mortar. But look what he says. You, are, um, you, are, you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. Do you know this? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Now go to Ephesians 2. So hang a right. Go a few pages till you get to Galatians, Ephesians, Right? Another letter written by Paul to a church in a different city. This city is Ephesus. And we're looking at verses 21 and 22. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Again, he's talking to Christians. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Don't get me started on membership. There's the word. Also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Do you see the imagery? Do you see the picture? If I took the time, I could draw you a picture of a a three-dimensional isometric drawing of a brick wall and the corner comes in and you have bricks and bricks. You know how they stack the bricks and they alternate and, and, and you come to the corner. And what Paul is saying is there's this spiritual temple that is made up of the people of God. The cornerstone at the foundation, the first stone laid is, is Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is all metaphorical language now, but it's actually effective too. In other words, real. And then this side of the foundation... The, prof, the, uh, the prophets of the Old Testament. And this side, we have the apostles of the New Testament. And all the rest of the blocks built on top of that foundation and that cornerstone are you and me, believers in Christ Jesus. And our names are on the blocks that stack up the, the walls of this spiritual temple. There's no longer a need for a physical temple in Jerusalem or anywhere else. There's no need because God has the Holy Spirit planted inside of believers as a deposit guaranteeing he's going to finish what he started. Okay, And he says that like three times in the New Testament. Okay, back to Matthew. The reason I bring that out is this. It is written, he said, that my house is to be called a house of prayer. My house is now in me. His house is now in me. His house is now in you and, and you and you and you and you. You followers of Christ. Is that true for the temple of God in you today? Is it a place of prayer? Which means it's a place of faith. Because prayer is the expression of faith. If we don't believe, then of course we're not going to pray. But if we say we believe and we don't pray, 
What does that say? I don't have time to beat that horse. Let's keep going. All right, verse 14. The blind and the lame came, we said, but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law, I'm back on verse uh, 14, 15, but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked Jesus. And yes, replied Jesus, have you never read? And this is an offensive statement because, of course, they've got it memorized. But he's having fun with them. Uh, Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he's quoting Psalm 8-2 there. And he left them and went went out of the city to Bethlehem where he spent the night. So that's the first day in Jerusalem. Okay, so now we're down to seven days left. And he's already stirred up quite the quake. Now, he ends with this little, this little um, I don't know what to call it. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. So I imagine he's gotten up, he's spent some time with the Father in prayer, and now he's ready to break his fast. That's why we call it breakfast. 19. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to the tree, said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt Not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. Now, my first reaction was not amazed at what he had done. I'm so used to his miracles that they don't even phase me anymore, which is not good. It's what happens when you read the the Bible for a long time. What bothers me is, why in the world did he hurt that poor little tree? As if the tree has feelings, right? But that's what went through my mind, okay? I'm like, oh, that's kind of cruel. Seems unnecessary, doesn't it? Jesus has a purpose for everything he's doing, okay? He is, look, this is a picture of what he just did in the temple and why. Why did he do that to the temple? He was calling out the hypocrisy of the temple. Watch this. Okay, so the tree, it's it's a fig tree. And while I don't enjoy figs, okay, I tried one once. I spit it out, all right? I, but I hear they're good, and I probably got a bad one, okay? Well, let's just go with that because it's a fruit, and fruit's good for you, even if it tastes like that. Okay, so a fig tree is, and he's looking for breakfast, and, you know, if you're used to that kind of thing, you're not really expecting Dunkin' Donuts, okay? You're, you're, you're looking for a fig. He goes to the tree, and he sees the tree covered in leaves, which tells him, and sidebar, There's a lot of different opinions on this from the botanical side of things, okay? I'm going to pick one that I still think communicates what he's trying to do, even though there may be another explanation. Stepping us back in. Okay, so he sees the tree covered in leaves, which tells him there should be something to eat on the tree. Now, Mark says it's not the season for figs. The book of Mark, the parallel account, says it's not the season for figs. So this is why people are like, that's really unfair for you to curse a tree that's not supposed to have figs on it. But what is he expecting to find on that tree? This is what I think. So the way a fig tree comes out of dormancy, I think I'm saying that right, um, is it starts putting out, different trees do it differently, first of all. Um, Apparently, fig trees in the Middle East first put out a blossom bud, a bud, okay? And, And then come the leaves, and then the buds become figs. 
okay? So I think what Mark is saying is there aren't figs yet, but there are buds on the tree, edible buds. I didn't know you could eat buds. I mean, I've seen my cat try to eat irises, and it's pretty funny, actually, but I would never try to eat the bud of anything, I don't think, but maybe I have and don't know it. But Jesus is looking for a little breakfast, and McDonald's is not open yet, so he goes to the fig tree expecting to find fruit. That's the point. And the tree is showing on the outside like it's loaded with fruit, and he looks for fruit, and he finds none. You see it? Okay, that's a picture of hypocrisy. Pretending you got it all together on the outside, but you got no fruit. Go back to the temple. What were the religious leaders doing? They were making it look really good on the outside, but there was no heart, no spiritual fruit to what they were doing. They were actually going against the main thing, which was compassionate hospitality, that we might reach the nations and be a blessing to the nations of the world, just as God told Abraham in Genesis 12. You will be a blessing because I'm going to send them. And I didn't plan to put this one on the screen either, but I'm going to read this real verse real quick. This is Isaiah 55. And listen to this. Isaiah is writing, but the Lord is speaking. So this is God speaking. And God says, see, I have made him, referring to King David in the verses prior, I have, see, I have made David a witness to the people, a witness. That is, he's testifying to who God is to the nations, to the peoples, a ruler and a commander of the peoples. This is verse 5. Surely you will summon nations. Okay, I'm sorry. Isaiah is writing this. Surely you, God, will summon nations you know not, and the nations you do not know will come running to you. In other words, God is sending the nations to Israel. He's sending them running to Israel, and he's sending them running to us. Three miles from here is a university. It's Charleston Southern University. And they bring in international students all the time who will never eat a meal inside a Christian home. The only picture they have of a Christian is on CNN and Fox. How comfortable are you with that? And if we don't do anything to change that and no other churches do anything to change that, then we're going to continue to have international students come through our university and never at least meet a hospitably compassionate follower of Christ. Three miles from here. That should not happen. And that's not the only place, right? More and more our country is, I mean, this is the beauty of America. I mean, right? The diversity of peoples that come is beautiful. It's awesome and amazing. That's part of why we're the, the nation that we've become. They come. Do you see it? We, yes, we want you to go to the nations. Yes, Jesus calls us to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth with the gospel. But for most of us, most of that time we're going to spend is right here. That doesn't mean we don't do those things where we live, work, and play. Compassionate hospitality is what he's called us to. Okay? You don't have to have a passport for that. I hope you get your passport. I hope you get it, have it ready so that when he says go, you're ready to go. So what are the four things we want to remember? We want to remember who we are. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the King of kings, the Son of the living God, and that by believing have life in his name, then you know that you're related. 
that you've been adopted in, and he is our heavenly father, and Jesus is our our, uh, joint heir in that kingdom inheritance. We want to remember that. We also want to remember what the father taught us and how to live. How how are we to live? We are to live pleasing to him, Hebrews 6, 8, 11, 6, Hebrews 11, 6. We are to live to please him. We are to please the the one with nail-scarred hands. That's how we're to live. And, and who remember, who is most important to, to God when you think about who he wants us to reach to, the least and the last and the lost, compassionate hospitality. And he wants us to remember the words of this very last verse, and that is that we uh, believe that we receive whatever we ask for in prayer. And yes, that's not just asking for a Lamborghini, okay? Obviously, if you're thinking at all like Jesus, if you're thinking at all like the kingdom of God, then you're going to ask for things that further God's agenda, not your dreams. And you're going to find life is going to be way better than anything you could dream up. That's what's so beautiful about it, okay? All right, look, sometimes we have people come um, into this place or log in online and they're like, I don't, I don't, you, you, you people are crazy. I don't know what you're, I don't know what y'all are. This is crazy stuff. Okay. All right. I'm just glad you're listening because I believe it. Okay. We're like, well, you, you get paid to believe it, right? No, I don't get paid to believe this. I left engineering, a career in civil engineering so that I could do this full time. That doesn't make me better than anybody else. That doesn't make me special in any way. It's just what God called me to do, and so I did it because I believe this. And this room is full of people who believe this. And there's people online watching right now that believe this. Okay? My question is, are you living like you believe it? Your days are numbered. But are you living them like Jesus did, knowing he only had eight days left? And this is what he chose to do with it. Are you and I living that way? Are we leading our kids to live that way at all? Are we even talking to them about living that way? Because that is not the way the world lives. We need to be. We need to lead by example with our words, but by example, unashamed. Because it's good news. Because why? Because this isn't all there is. This is a drop in the bucket of the ocean of eternity, and the best is yet to come. And when you believe that, you can take just about anything in this life. And he won't throw anything at you you can't take in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord, you said a lot today. I can't even keep up. And you want us to think about this because you want us to reorient our lives so that they orbit around you consistently, faithfully, by grace through faith. Lord, I know I can't live this way by myself. I cannot live this way apart from you, your spirit, your word, your people. I need all of those integrated into my life so that I can live this way. Otherwise, I'm going to get swept up in the world. I'm going to have those, I'll fill my life with trivial pursuits. I I struggle with it all the time. Lord, you're what matters because you are showing mercy to those who need mercy. And that's humanity. And you've called us as your followers, people who have received that mercy gift, 
to come and join you in helping others understand that mercy that is available to them as well through Jesus Christ. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're reminded that Jesus went to the cross. At the end of that eight-day run, he dies on the cross in our place so that we could live on earth in his. And that, there's no greater glory or purpose to live for than to live selflessly to save others. And that is what you call us to, but you must first save us. But Lord, some of us have fallen asleep. We've been saved and now we're, we're just sitting and slumbering and we're caught up in so many things that don't matter that we don't even realize we're asleep. Lord, I know that you want to wake us up. I pray that today you wake us up. I'm talking to believers in the room. I'm, Lord, I know you're speaking to them and I just pray that I'm talking to myself. Lord, wake us up to what really matters and give us the courage to live out our convictions and not just pretend and live out what other people perceive as a hypocritical lifestyle. Help us to be true to you, remembering who we are, remembering how you taught us to live, remembering who you want us to pursue with compassionate hospitality and to remember to trust you fully and faithfully. And I pray you'll help us do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching today. It's our hope that as a result of today that you'll grow in your desire to become the best neighbor ever where you live, work, and play. Uh, we also hope that you'll like and subscribe to the video if that's helpful and maybe even share it with others. Now, for more information about our church or our online ministry, you can go to gracetoday.net slash contact and you can leave a comment and tell us how God's working as a result of the ministry that we've been doing or how we can help you if, that's, if there's a need. Um, that's gracetoday.net slash contact. And finally, if you just want to know more about how to trust and follow Jesus, you can text me. My phone is 843-830-2464. That's 843-830-2464. Two four six four.